Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. We hope that these resources aid your worship of God and help you experience gospel change for all of life. For more information on our church or to plan a visit, please check us out online at SovereignHope.Church. That's SovereignHope.Church. Let's pray one more time and we'll dive into God's word together. Lord Jesus, we are always in need of your word. As people, uh, we are always um, reliant. You have not made us to be um, independent from you, but by being creator, uh, creatures made in the image of a creator. The only way we can understand ourselves truly, the only way we can live to the fullness of the potential of each of us is that we find ourselves in proper standing and relationship and wonderful dependence on you. So be gracious to us this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, so my wife was one of the lucky ones who had complications following her first bout of COVID, and her doctors recommended that she get what's called a stress echocardiogram to understand what was going on in her heart and her lungs afterwards. And for this procedure, they took her in and they injected her with some sort of dye uh, that then circulated in her heart and took pictures of it while she was standing and while she was exercising. And the result was they were able to see the parts of her heart which were working as they should, and also the parts of her heart which, as I told her, are just downright lazy. No, that weren't working uh, as they should be working. <clears throat> and this diagnosis was helpful for us. And such a procedure took lots of technology, a whole team of medical staff, a wonderful insurance plan to pull off. But in our text today, Jesus is going to give each of us a free echocardiogram. He's going to help us see the places in which our hearts might not be working in ways that we are unaware of, faults and flaws, Outside of the help of Jesus, we're not able to see. And he's going to do this in the same way they did with my wife, by placing it under a little bit of stress. We've been working through the book of Luke here at Sovereign Hope. And already uh, in the book of Luke, what we've seen is we've seen conflict building around people's perception and understanding of who Jesus is. There's nothing more determinative or important about your life. You, are not, you cannot be more defined than what you think about Jesus and your relationship to him. That is for believers and unbelievers in general. Last week, Luke warned us <clears throat> in the teaching of Jesus that Jesus was the sign of Jonah. That is the sign par excellence. If you want to know if Jesus is the Messiah, where do you look? You look at the cross where he spends three days in the grave calling us to repent and to avoid judgment. And this week, the lens is narrowing a bit to show us Jesus's chief opponents, that is the religious elite, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the lawyers of the day. Twice so far in the book of Luke, Luke has used this word to test. He said the crowds are coming to test Jesus. They want to assess the validity of who he is. And what we see today is in light of their desire to test Jesus, Jesus is going to read their own test results back to them. He's going to share with them what he sees with divine wisdom about their heart. And we see the context for these lab results today in what was just read in Luke 11, verses 37 through 39. Here we see this. I am in the wrong chapter of the own, my own text that I'm preaching, so give me a second here. All right. Uh, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not wash first before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. And so already we begin to see Jesus drawing to the surface the heart 
of the Pharisees. Jesus has uh, been working and the Pharisees have been a thorn in his side. And the Pharisee, uh, one specific Pharisee, that's all we know, just one of them, invites Jesus to eat with him. And Jesus mercifully obliges and goes. He does exactly what's asked of him. But as soon as he does it, this man is aghast. He's already offended at what Jesus has done. Why? Because Jesus didn't first wash his hands before dinner. Now, Jesus wasn't being gross here. Kids, you should wash your hands before you eat. The debate wasn't, do we eat with dirty hands or do we eat with clean hands? You see, we have to understand a bit of the Pharisees here. The Pharisees were a lay movement, a group of ordinary Jews who came together to seek to follow God's law very specifically. They loved the Old Testament law. And this, to a degree, is not bad. Jesus loves the Old Testament law. He talks about not one part of that will go away until it is fulfilled. We ought to love the Old Testament law. But as the name Pharisee itself means, this sect of followers uh, desired really sincere separatism from anything worldly, anything carnal, anything impure. And so in order to do that, and again, that on its own is good. Jesus warns us about being too involved with the world. He warns us about being defiled by the desires of our hearts. But what the Pharisees then did is they took the Old Testament law and they did two things with it. First, they universalized it, which meant they looked at all of the laws that were given to the Old Testament priests and the priests alone, and they said all of the cleanliness and all of the purification rituals that the priests had to do, everyone else has to do. As one commentator said of the Pharisees, it said, every house was a temple, every table was an altar, and every man was a priest. So you were not held to parts of the law, you were upheld to even parts regardless of whether you're a priest or not. And then secondly, they not only universalized it, bringing the, the ordinary Israelites to the highest standard of the high priest, but they also expanded it. Meaning they added laws for purification and for cleanliness that not even the priests themselves were commanded to obey in scripture. And so the issue here is not that Jesus just didn't wash or didn't eat uh, with clean hands. It's literally that Jesus didn't put the same amount of effort into washing his hands as the high priest would to prepare a sacrifice on the day of atonement. That's what they were aghast at, is that Jesus disregarded all of these extra biblical rules that didn't apply to him. And the Pharisees were aghast because everything they understood was through the lens of purity, unstained, set apart, distinct. And that was how they understood themselves. And Jesus ate then like a commoner. He wasn't distinct. And Jesus being fully God and fully man, just as he does with each of us today, knew the heart of the Pharisee without the Pharisee having to say anything. And he began to then speak to the religious officials saying this, and the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. And so here the scene is set for everything that Jesus is going to discuss in the remainder of our text today as he rebukes religious leaders, and he opens with this parable of doing dishes. And so kids, imagine that you had cereal the day before, and you didn't finish it. And it sat in that bowl overnight, 
And the first thing your dad did is the next morning he took that bowl and he scrubbed the outside of it and he gave it back to you with all that yucky, gross, milk, soggy cereal and said, here you go, eat. What would you do? It'd be gross. Because even though the outside is clean, the inside is full of rancid, gross marshmallow flakes. It doesn't make any sense at all. And that's the simplicity of Jesus' point. It doesn't matter how nice the outside of the cup looks if on the inside it's full of rancid milk. And he gives two reasons behind this. The first reason is because God sees what's on the inside. Did not he who make the outside make the inside as well? And then secondly, we'll see as we continue on, that not only does God see it, but others are always affected by it. In other words, what's on the inside inevitably comes to the outside. And so Jesus gives a solution in verse 41. Did you see that? He says to those who have a dirty inside and a clean outside, he says, instead, give alms. That is to give mercifully or generously. It's something that was often to to be given to the poor, but here the context is obviously to be given to the Lord. Give alms the things that are within. And behold, everything will be clean for you. What does he mean when he says that? Well, it means that instead of offering to Jesus the pristine, sparkling outside of the cup, which we have scrubbed by our own power, the external displays of our lives, we are to offer to him that which is within, that which is unseen. Now, remember, the immediate context of what is within is given to us in verse 39. Do you see what's within? Greed and wickedness. What Jesus is therefore after is the humble offering of sinful, broken, and messy pieces of your life. And when we offer this from within, instead of the sparkling outside, God cleanses the outside. Every part of you is made clean for you. Now, before we move on, we need to notice the tension. Jesus wants what's within. He doesn't want, you are not justified by that which is on the outside. But... Contrary to our culture today, the goal is not simply authenticity. Maybe you've heard that today. Just be true to who you are. But to be a truly authentic, greedy, and wicked person is of no benefit to anyone. (laughs) To just admit, yeah, I am a terrible, lousy person, deal with it, doesn't help you, it doesn't help others, and it misses the whole point. Because what, is, what we see here is Jesus says that you acknowledge authentically that which is within. You offer it to Jesus, not trying to say, I'm so clean, I'm so pure, I'm so wonderful, but going with the brokenness you rightfully see inside. And what happens? He cleanses you. Change happens, not because of your elbow grease on the outside, but because of the working of Jesus's grace on the inside. And this is our main point today. Jesus cleanses us by calling us to offer and address the issues of our hearts. Are you one who wants to be cleansed by Jesus? Are you one who wonders where your standing is before the Lord? Jesus cleanses us by calling us to offer and address the issues of our hearts. The text, as you've noticed, is addressed to Pharisees. 
And when we read texts addressed to Pharisees, there's often two ways we read it. First, there are those who read all of the woes and all of the guilty verdicts that Jesus gives, and they say, that is me, I am the worst of all sinners, and they are burdened with guilt and despair. But notice, if that is you, that this text not only acknowledges the wickedness which is inside, but what does it hold out for you? The promise of cleansing. The promise of holistic redemption through the work of repentance and faith. But then there's others, and perhaps that's the majority of us, where as soon as we start talking about Pharisees, we know the Pharisees in our life. Our ears turn to the others, and you're sitting here right now, and you're maybe looking across the sanctuary, and you're like, Carl needs this. This is for Carl today. But this is preserved for all of us by the power of the Holy Spirit that we might be warned by this, that perhaps in ways we are unaware, this heart is our heart, that we should think soberly about the ways in which external human-powered works subtly influence how we perceive our own standing before the Lord. And as Jesus rebukes the lawyers and the Pharisees here, we're actually gonna take them as couplets, almost as mere images, where they, they mirror each other, working towards the center where there's a scathing rebuke of the religious industry of the day. And what Jesus is doing through these illustrations and this pairing is he's creating almost a container that allows us, like if you were to put a science experiment in a jar or in a beaker, that's probably what you put science experiments in, um, you can see the filth that's on the inside. And he's building this container with us to view our own hearts where just as the singular fruit of the Holy Spirit produces an abundance of righteous fruit, here the singular fruit of hypocrisy produces an abundance of rottenness. And so we are to be on guard in light of this text. And I think what Jesus wants to show us is that we are to be on guard in addressing the issues and offering our heart of three specific motivations that we'll see. Those motivations we'll walk through together are delusional contentment, empty applause, and harmful holiness. Delusional contentment, empty applause, and harmful holiness. And so let's begin to examine Jesus's warning of delusional contentment. And we're gonna be looking again at this mere coupling at verse 42 and then at verse 52. He begins in verse 42. Woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And skip down to verse 52. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. What brings you a sense of contentment in your walk with Jesus, if you claim to have one? If you don't, why do you feel discontent with that? If you had to answer the question, is God himself content, pleased, happy with how you follow him? Or are you content, pleased, happy with your walk with the Lord? How would you answer that? And what list, fruit or qualifications would you give to answer that? Now, I want to preface something here, and this applies to the rest of the sermon. I know there are many in here who when I asked those questions, would stand up and say, I am not doing well. I don't claim to do well. 
I see how holy Jesus is. I see how unrighteous I am. And I wrestle with how me, as someone who is wicked, greedy, and evil, can stand before a holy God. I want to pause and say that that is a different heart than what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is not talking to those, to those who are keenly and authentically aware of the wickedness in their heart. He takes a different tone with you. And you could learn much from this. You could be warned from this. You could disciple out of this. But Jesus is here talking to those who are on the opposite. Those who, when I give that list of how you qualify your contentment, can give a myriad of things to say, God is pleased with me. Or I am okay with the Lord. This is written not to those who are honestly aware of their brokenness, but to those who in subtle ways are boasting in their self-righteousness. And these parables help us understand this. The first one, he talks about those who tithe mint and rue and every herb, but neglect the justice and the love of God. They give, contrary to what Jesus says, of the outside, but not of the inside. The principle of the tithe is taken from the Old Testament, where it prescribed that farmers and laborers were to give a tenth of their proceeds, the tenth of their income, tenth of their crop, to the Lord for the, in, through the, the service of the temple and of the priests. But here we see the Pharisees expanding and universalizing the law once more. They tithe not only off of their income, but they tithe off of their cupboard. Have you guys heard the joke about CrossFitters? It's how do you discern who goes to CrossFit? And you don't need to because they'll just tell you. Yeah. And so here... <laughs> There's a similar, you guys, you'll get it later. Um, there's a similar uh, vibe here that people know exactly what and to what length the Pharisees are giving. Now, I think it's a biblical form of discipleship to open up your generosity to those to show, like, this is what we do. This is how we give. This is what it looks like to respond generously to the Lord. But the extent of what they give and to what degree is obviously being lorded over others so that they might seem so cool. Like, hey, did you notice? Oh, you went and put in a check? Cool, I put some cinnamon back there. Did you do that? I didn't see anyone offer any mint today. And that's okay. But why? Because even though these people are going to the darkest corner of their pantries, in order to tithe, to feel good about themselves, they neglect to give that which is within, which is the justice and love of God. And notice what Jesus says to them. He says, these things you should have done without neglecting the former. That's important. Listen to what Jesus is saying here. He isn't saying, stop being generous with your wealth. Stop caring for others. Stop giving instead. Or he doesn't say that. And then he said, don't worry about the external. Just, just love from your heart. If the inside is good, then everything else is good too. Instead, he says, do both. <laughs> Let the internal generosity fuel the external generosity. Christianity is often a both and religion. He wants external generosity, but he also wants generous living, generous worship, generous justice, generous care for others, generous compassion for the Lord. For some of us, it's really easy to be content in the standards of what we do externally. What we give, perhaps to the church or to other uh, charitable causes. How we serve here or elsewhere. But the generosity and affection of the heart, not of the pocketbook or of the external, is of Jesus' primary concern here. If you remember way back when, when we were in Luke chapter 10, we get a summary of the law. In Luke 10, 26 through 28, Jesus says to this lawyer, a similar lawyer to what we're reading about today, 
Jesus said to him, what is written in the law and how do you read it? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. We cannot fulfill the law. We cannot be content that we have any of God's pleasure if we refuse to offer as of first importance what God himself says is of first importance, that we would love God and love others. Everything else is fine, but to neglect this is to, connect, to neglect the very thing God says is required of you. I just found out the other day um, Maybe you husbands have done this too, where sometimes I'm at the store and I'm like, I'm going to be a super husband today. I'm going to get something for my wife. And I always got her this specific chocolate bar that I thought was her favorite chocolate bar. We've been married. I don't know. How long have we been married? My wife's not here today, so I can stumble in front. We were married in 2011. You could do the math. Um, uh, so I've been married that long. I've been giving her the same candy bar. And last week, she told me that it's not her favorite candy bar. This would have been good to know, sweetheart. I'd like for you to just open up and share this with me. But what would be more shocking is if after she told me this, I continued to go by that exact same candy bar and boast to all of you about what a good husband I am. It's not that she doesn't like it, but it's that if I was truly trying to please her, she wanted something else. God has told us what he wants from us. He wants our hearts. He wants what's on the inside. Do not boast in what you give externally if you're not willing to do what he demands first and foremost internally. Jesus' rebuke continues again in verse 52 when he gets at the other half of this couplet. He says, Woe to you lawyers, if you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. What blatant delusion here. Jesus is obviously talking about the kingdom of God. That's living according to God's presence and rule. It's living according to the kingdom principles of the new heavens and new earth. And the Pharisees have taken away the key of knowledge. We saw the sign of Jonah last week. Jesus says, see this. And they're like, we don't want to see it. And they're so self-confident that they don't need anything Jesus is saying, doing, or calling them to that they blatantly disregard him. They throw away the key to hear or understand anything Jesus is talking about. But more than that, what do they do? They withhold others from it. They stop those who otherwise would be entering. And here we see in both of these, a willful withholding that's rooted in false confidence. I don't need to give on the inside. I give on the outside. You don't need Jesus. You're fine right where you are. Now we're in church today. I imagine most of you came here hoping to be persuaded to believe in Jesus, not to be dissuaded from believing in Jesus. Most of us would never want to dissuade and throw away the key of knowledge to Jesus with our words. That seems antithetical to our efforts to evangelize and share the gospel with the lost. But where are times where our life actually throws away the key of knowledge to those who would otherwise enter. If you claim to be a Christian and yet the whole of your life is based off some other key to some other kingdom, do you think that might have an unintended effect on all who witness your life? 
Do you think a life poured out for the thrill of adventure or advancement in a job or worldly success might deceive others into thinking that the kingdom of God, the key of knowledge, looks more like that and less like Jesus? Or where perhaps do we see people eagerly pursuing pure biblical, honest holiness And yet that holiness is a threat to our own lives and it makes us uncomfortable. And then what do we do? You have somebody you're meeting and he's talking to you about all this time. He loves getting up in the morning. He loves reading God's word and he's sharing it. And what do you say? You say, brother, it's all grace. You don't need to go through that effort. It's not the external. Don't worry about it. It's grace, amigo. Chill out. Don't read your Bible as much. Don't serve as much. Don't pray as much. Relax. You see, out of a contentment in worldly things, we might boast in who we are, what we've done, and what we know. But all such boasting is evil, and it deceives others from seeing the key of knowledge which would otherwise save them. Beware of a contentment in your heart that finds assurance before God in anything less than offering that which is within to Jesus. Next, Jesus warns us of those who live for empty applause. Empty applause. Read with me, John or Luke 11, verse 43, and then we'll look at verses 47 through 51. So this is verse 43. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Verse 47. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, And you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God has said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation." A heart which is unconcerned about that which is within will always be a heart longing for the praise of those who are without. I'll say that again. A heart that is unconcerned with that which is within will always long for the praise of those who are without. The superintendent of the school I went to growing up often said, if a thousand people say a stupid thing, it's still a stupid thing. And what Jesus is saying here is if a thousand people affirm a stupid thing, it's still a stupid thing. But don't we know the danger of wanting that affirmation, even if we know that what it's affirming is a farce, that we are not the substance that they think we are. In Lewis's Narnia series, there's this absolutely incompetent, terrible king named Tisrock, And yet he has uh, conditioned his subjects to whenever they talk of him or see him, they say, oh, Tisrock, may he live forever. Now, why does he do that? He does that because every time someone says that to him, whether they mean it or not, it puffs him up. I'm doing fine. People are saying, oh, Tisrock, live forever. Things are going well. It doesn't matter if I'm incompetent as long as people are affirming me. And this desire 
to live for and demand such external applause is a real weight in our own hearts. This is exactly what John himself speaks of in John chapter 12, verse 42 through 43. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed him, that's believing in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. If no one saw your holiness, if no one liked your Instagram post of your morning devotions or theology readings, if no one commented on your church attendance, if no one complimented your selfless service, would you still do it? Would you still care for it? Now, my hope is that as a church, we would be affirming people like God is affirming. When people do this, we would say, yes, this is a beautiful thing. We're so glad God has transformed your life like this. But let us be a people who find our deepest affirmation, not in the applause of men, but in the affirmation of God himself, which is to affirm what Jesus is affirming, not the externals, but the internals. Be wary of a religion which comes to church and is seen as a church member. We just installed nine new members, each of you, Be wary of coming here, of singing full-throated song, of taking the Lord's Supper, of confessing your sin, and then going home and living a life in private which refuses to live by everything that was professed in public. And this is what leads to our second and more robust point on this issue. And here he talks about those people who seek applause by association. They want to be lumped in and understood as belonging to a higher guild a specific sect of culture. He talks about these lawyers who build big, elaborate tombs, many of which, if you were to travel to Israel, are still standing today. But they do that, and they build that in hopes that they would be seen in the same light as the prophets of the Old Testament. But look at what Jesus says in 11, verse 47 through 49, or 48, excuse me. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed, So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your father for they killed them and you build their tombs. What's going on here? Have you heard the, the phrase dead men tell no tales? That's exactly what's going on here. These men are building tombs of dead prophets and they're saying, we loved these prophets. We are honoring these prophets. But what's the problem Jesus is saying? He's saying if those prophets were alive today, they would be condemning you. Just because they cannot speak does not mean you are safe. It does not mean you are responding rightly. They called God's people to repent. They called God's people to hear his voice. And you are even more guilty of it. Your building of the tombs shows your guilt. Why? Because you yourselves, Pharisees and lawyers, are rejecting the greatest prophet, Jesus Christ. Look at what he says next in Luke eleven forty nine through 51. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. So who is this generation? That's an important question. This generation, Jesus says, is the generation who doesn't reject a prophet of God, 
but a generation who rejects the prophet who is God. Here is Jesus himself, God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity incarnate, calling people to faith and repentance in him. And he says, for those who reject him, for those who kill that prophet, the sum of all the fullness of all the violence of all the unbelief of the previous generations will be added up and one day God will judge it all. Do you realize that we here today are part of this generation? We stand not in history looking towards God's greatest prophet, but we stand in one looking back at Jesus Christ, God himself. And one day, those who have not responded, those who find their actions leading to the death of this one apart from faith, you will be judged. And the irony is that these men wanted to be seen as servants of the prophet. They wanted to be associated with the prophets, but their association affirmed how far they were. I feel this may be one of the sneakiest traps of our hearts today, specifically for those who go to our church and love the theological robustness and slightly academic, I hope to say slightly, some of you might laugh, slightly academic lean of our church. I love reading theology. I love talking, teaching, discipling about theology, but quoting John Calvin or St. Augustine is no badge of anything. It means nothing. I once saw a pastor who wore a shirt, and on the shirt was this really hipster facade of Charles Spurgeon, this uh, 19th century uh, preacher in London. And he wore it to identify with kind of this cool Charles Spurgeon. I love Charles Spurgeon. He's great. He is cool. Uh, and wore it to identify with this. Meanwhile, this same pastor did not believe in the inerrancy, infallibility of Scripture, did not believe in the existence of hell, and therefore did not believe that Jesus needed to save us from our sins. The irony was, if Charles Spurgeon were alive and he saw that man wearing his face on his torso, Charles would have some choice words. Any of you who have read Charles Spurgeon's sermons know that would be a critique we would love to see. He would undo him. You could slap a Christian fish on your car. You could buy a bumper sticker for this church, which does not and will not exist. You could get my face tattooed on your calf. You could plaster the walls of your home with Bible verses. But if you do not live or listen in accord with what is preached, it means nothing. There is no saved by association. There is only salvation by atonement in Jesus Christ. It is as the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 29, 13. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. They drew near, but it was all that which was affirmed by men. All of the external, none of the within. If the cross and scripture are merely symbols in your life, they mean nothing. But if the cross and scripture are the substance of your Christian faith, our lives are markedly shaped by them. We expect affliction and difficulty in life because Jesus himself wasn't spared by it. We do not fear man responding to our genuine holiness with confusion or disgust, for they treated Jesus in the same way. 
but we also allow scripture to speak into our hearts, even where it condemns and challenges us. Why? Because the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing of the division of the bone and the marrow and the soul and the spirits, and all are laid bare before it. And this leads to the central critique and warning of false religion that Jesus gives us today. And this is a warning against harmful holiness. Harmful holiness. Now, I want to preface this because many of you might think there's not another category for holiness. That all holiness is harmful holiness. The idea of being holy is to be set apart, to be uh, cut off and, and distinct like God is, is often, according to our flesh, a dreadful idea. Why? Because it lives for the priority and the glory of another and not for the priority and glory of self. And so it seems hostile And in our world, in our modern culture, holiness and hypocrisy almost go hand hand in hand. Our culture doesn't quite know where hypocrisy ends and holiness begins, and therefore, they're one and the same. But there is nothing more beautiful than true holiness. A holy life may look like less by worldly standards. It may look like foolishness by worldly standards, but it by spiritual standards is far more. The person who lives in holiness, the person who relies on Jesus to transform what is within and to daily conform them and cleanse them and cause them to desire what Jesus desires and to obey what Jesus calls us to obey, who walks in the power of the Spirit, walks in intimate, beautiful fellowship with Jesus and drinks deeply from the wellspring of all life. The older I get, the harder it is to remember how many years I've been married. (laughs) But the older I get on top of that, the more I see the wickedness in my heart, the more I see the failings of my flesh, and the more desperate I am for holiness. Not because the alternative is judgment, though that's true, but because the alternative is joylessness. God calls his people to be holy as I am holy, not merely for our preservation, but also for our preoccupation to walk in holiness with the Lord is for our infinite, endless, soul-satisfying, world-rejecting, life-giving, evangelism-producing, eternity-sensing, sin-crushing, Christ-magnifying, fear-smiting joy. Holiness is the hope and happiness of all God's people. But... To add external holiness without the internal righteousness of Jesus Christ and to hold that up to others as the standard by which we are content with the Lord is to cause not only harm to yourself, but to everyone around you. Just as I might affirm the joy and beauty of biblical gender roles in the church and in the home while also rail against the perverted misapplications and abuse of it, so too Jesus can lay glorious hope in the holiness of the saints while laying the axe to the root of harmful holiness according to the works of the flesh. And so do you consider yourself one who desires to be holy? If you do, If you think and as your goal to do what we just commended to these members, to help others do the same, then heed this warning carefully and humbly. Luke 11, 44 through 46. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. 
One of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, woe to you, lawyer, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So let us first be warned of the influence you have on others, whether you realize it or not. Jesus gives this illustration of unmarked graves and people walking over them. This might seem odd to us, but it carried a moral weight to the individuals of this day. In Leviticus 19, in the law, for reasons of public safety and trying to eliminate much touching of dead bodies, uh, if someone walked over a grave or touched a corpse, they were unclean for seven days until they were made clean. They couldn't rejoin God's people. And yet the role of the priests during this time, was to be, as it was called, the clean ones. The priests who had not touched that would come and they would sprinkle cleansing water on these individuals so that at the end of the seven, they might be welcomed back into fellowship with God's people. Jesus' critique here is absolutely clear and condemning. He's saying, you externally-minded Pharisees, You think you are the clean ones who are helping the unclean. You think you are helping those coming to you with defiling burdens. Instead, you are the unmarked grave who defile all who unknowingly follow your lifestyle. Now we sit here, thousands of years removed. We've read the book before. We know the Pharisees are the bad guys. But guess what? At this moment in time, the Pharisees were the good guys. They were the standard of what it looked like to honor the Lord. And here Jesus is unmasking the filth behind their distortion of God's law. They were the ones who knew the law, the pillars of righteousness, and we see them for their filth. When people came to them for cleansing, the Pharisees did not teach them to humbly offer that which is within the brokenness of a contrite heart and humble sacrifices to the Lord who is gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Instead, they slap some paint on it. They say, scrub the outside and you'll be fine. And in so doing, they defile those who seek to be helped. Secondly, in turning to the lawyers, and I love this, lest they think their insult is accidental, Jesus makes it quite intentional. He says, you tie up people with burdens hard to bear, And you don't touch those burdens with even one of your fingers. Now we need to be careful here. Because some of those burdens are perhaps true burdens from the law. Even though Jesus has fulfilled the law for us today and perfectly submitting himself to it, there are implications of the law of Christ which restrict us. It calls us, again, to not live life-centered on oneself, but to live life-centered for another. There are burdens, though blessed burdens, of following Jesus. But I imagine most of these burdens stemmed from the expanding and universalizing of the law, where as people came for help, they were heaped with more laws, more rules, more weights, and more requirements. And here Jesus turns the lens all the more to focus specifically on the root of the issue. You do this, you tie them up, and you do nothing to help them. You don't even move a finger to touch it. To anyone who has influence anywhere, sit in humble fear of this text. To my brother elders, beware. To husbands and fathers, beware. To community group leaders, 
beware. To disciples, beware. Beware that your holiness is biblical holiness, lest it deaden the lost, extinguish the weak, and destroy the aspiring. Consider the examples and the externals of your holiness. Where does holiness show up? What would you point to? And ask yourself, what does this say about the gospel? What does this say about the connection between the inside and the outside? Is this a model of gospel joy? Am I pursuing this? Because at the bottom of it is the gospel of grace. At the bottom of it is not the elbow grease of my effort, but the grace of Jesus, which conforms that which is itself broken into something which by grace becomes beautiful. Is there abiding worship at the heart of it? Worship towards God, not admiration for man. Or am I pursuing these acts of holiness because it looks holy and it emphasizes at the end of the day my own work, my own power, my own knowledge? Your answer to that question means a lot. I've met lots of women in my life. I've never met a single woman who says she wears high heels because they're comfortable. If you're one of those women in here today, you come talk to me about it. Sounds like you should maybe get on a marketing campaign. But they wear them because it meets the occasion. Because in certain specific contexts, it's just what one is to wear to be seen as in whatever context of whether being beautiful or successful or whatever, you wear it to match the perception for man's standards. But it's never out of affection. The result is I have met so few evangelists for high heels. How many of us do not help others in their pursuit of true holiness because we look at the holiness in our own lives and realize there's nothing attractive in it to which to call others. Because we look at it and we try to squeeze in the externals to meet a specific form or shape without having any comfort or affections from the Lord in it. We don't do it out of desire to grow or the honor of God or love for others, but only to look the part. But if our holiness was motivated by worship, if at the bottom of it was perhaps a unique discomfort, but also the beautiful comfort of Jesus Christ, we would bind up where the Bible binds up, but we would also look to those who are wrestling and those who are lagging with the biblical weight, and we would seek them. We would leave the 99 for the sake of the lost. We would reject our own progress and move backwards, we would take the initiative to lift, to carry, to cut, and to disentangle those burdens, not with the effort of human might, but with the mercy of the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ. We would be driven towards those as Jesus was driven towards us. Is your holiness biblical? Does it stem from a heart made new by the work of Jesus? or a work of the flesh to cleanse the outside seen by others? Is your holiness benevolent? Does it challenge others with the biblical weight of joyful worship? Or does it demand from others what God himself doesn't demand from us? 
What does your holiness show others about your holy God? Brothers and sisters, take heed of your hearts and assess the motivations of your actions. And if you find yourself guilty of these hearts, do not make the same mistake. Do not lapse into the work of the flesh or the comfort of hypocrisy. Do not turn back to external change and say, well, now I need to do this. Now I need to change how I live here. Yes, change is the goal. Cleanliness is what happens. But how does it happen? By offering the honesty of what is within. Do as Jesus commands you in this text. For those convicted by the biblical weight of hypocrisy, for those whose hearts do not stand up to the exam, consider Christ. Go to him humbly with the filth this has exposed. You see, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees because instead of being the ones who sprinkle cleansing water on the defiled, they add to their defilement. But here is Jesus, the clean one who has come to cleanse us by taking our sins and giving us the water of regeneration. Jesus has water that washes the dirtiest, the wickedest, the most vile, the most conceited, the most hypocritical, the most anything. Stop trusting in the external and start giving from within the true reality of your heart and watch as God works from the inside out to slowly cause us to sparkle as Jesus transforms us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you work a miracle in our hearts, that today you would suspend even for a moment all of the biblical weight of holiness, all the things which come after salvation, good things, great things, wonderful things, things which you created beforehand that we should walk in them. But that's for this moment, Lord. May you suspend that reality for the sake of us having clarity on the state of our hearts. That we might know that apart from you taking our within by faith, apart from you dying on the cross for the greed and wickedness of our hearts, nothing matters. Lord, challenge in us that priority. And then once you have set that right, cleanse us in every way. Make us new. Make us resplendent pictures of benevolent holiness that helps others, that heals others, and that glorifies God. But Lord, today, make us singular-minded on the issues of our hearts to see Jesus, who has come to heal us. Amen.